Thanks for listening to the Crosspoint Podcast. This is the Young Adults Ministry of the Franklin Road Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Here we desire to see this generation of young adults reached and revived with the gospel of Christ. We believe our generation has the opportunity to change the world as we know it. We'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Franklin Road Baptist Church. Our prayer is that our podcast will help you grow in your relationship with God. Enjoy the Crosspoint Podcast. As we've really gone throughout this book, it it almost is one of those books that if you're not careful, it can sound repetitive. And a lot of times we make a statement like repetition is the key to learning, but the truth is, is in our culture, repetition is almost the key to ignoring. When we say, say something multiple times, sometimes it can almost get to become uh, lackluster. Have you ever thought about the times where you, you learn something new for the very first time? That's a pretty awe-inspiring moment, isn't it? When you kind of have that aha moment to where something clicks with you and now all of a sudden you get to see it and you get to apply it to your life. That is, that's exciting. That's something that you can recall. That's maybe, there's maybe a moment in a class to where it's like, oh, wait a second, all this stuff that I was getting Fs on, now I'm getting Cs on because something clicked, okay? So you have those moments in life, but at the same time, if you're not careful, You will study something, you will learn about something, and eventually it'll almost just become old hat. It'll just become something that you, "Eh, I, I learned about that, that was exciting then, but now it's not. And when you read the book of Philippians and you think about finding joy and you read of Paul's joy and you read of how he found it and how he found it in Christ, it can almost turn into something that is like, well, that's great. But that doesn't work in 2020. Or it was great one week when I did that, but it gets really hard to do week in and week out. And here's what I think that this conclusion is. When you, when you think about Scripture, when you think about the way that the Apostle Paul wrote, here's the way that Philippians wraps up. He says, okay, I've given you all the instruction that I can give you all of the advice that the Holy Spirit has told me to give you. I've given you examples. He used words like, I press toward the mark. He talked about his consolation. He talked about how much he loved them and how much they loved him. And then at the conclusion of this book, he basically brings it down to this. This is what it looks like in my life. This is what it looks like in your life. And this is what we're going to do about it. And so that's exactly what we're going to do tonight. This does not outline as, what, as the way that most of our lessons done. We're basically going to look at two examples. This is what it looked like in Paul's life. This is what it looked like in the church of Philippi. And this is what we can do about it. So first of all, out of the life of Paul, notice this, that joy is found in contentment. Joy is found in contentment. Now when we use the word contentment, here's what we almost associate it with. We associate it with, well, when the stuff that I have, I need to be content with. I think Christian contentment is much deeper than that. Sometimes we associate contentment with, well, the problems that I have in life, I need to be okay with. And I think Christian contentment is much deeper than that as well. When we talk about actual Christian biblical contentment, here's what we are talking about is that not only are we okay with maybe some of the things that we have and the things we don't have, 
Not only are we okay with some of the problems that we have and some of maybe the hardships that we do face and some of the things that we don't get to do, but here's what I believe Christian contentment and the difference maker is, is that Christian contentment actually brings Christian joy. You see, there's a lot of people in life that have become apathetic with their situation. There's a lot of people in life that have maybe just become, well, this is my lot in life. I guess I'll just deal with it. This is the car that I have. This is the friends that I have. This is the situation that I'm in. This is the problems that I face. And we've become apathetic with it. But very few people and very few Christians actually cross that line to where now they're saying, I am rejoicing in where I'm at. I am finding joy in where I'm at. I'm not just content content and apathetic, but I am happy. I am, I am joyful at the place that I'm in. And you say, well, how in the world can you do that? Let's recall where Paul was writing this from. He says that I have learned whatsoever state I am in therewith to be content. Someone tell me what state was he in? Not physical state, not like Nevada. Okay, I'm not saying that. What state was he in? Jail. So if he could say from prison that he was content, how many of you think that we as children of God in 2020, with all of the blessings that we have and all of the grace that has been shown to us, that we can also say, I am content and I am rejoicing in that. So here's what we notice is that first of all, the rejoicing of contentment, the rejoicing of contentment. Look at verse number 10. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Let me just ask you a very simple question. When was the last time you rejoiced in the Lord? When was the last time you thanked God for something? I'm not, I'm not talking about just good things here, okay? I'm not talking about just the things that you enjoyed, the things that brought you joy. Oh, praise the Lord for that. That was so great. I'm talking about when was the last time you rejoiced in the Lord and when was the last time you did it greatly? You've got to remember that most of Paul's writings would have been within a time frame of the same amount of time that you and I have been Christians if you've been saved as a child. And the fact that Paul was able to say, I rejoiced greatly in a time in his life to where he would have had every excuse to not rejoice is pretty revealing. And if you say, well, I'm content, I, I'm okay, I, I, this, is, this is where I'm at, I'm fine with it, nah, this, I'm just okay with it, then here's what you need to step back and ask yourself, have I rejoiced in this situation lately? Have I rejoiced in the Lord? The fact that God thought me to be well enough, that he thought me to be spiritual enough to handle the stress that I'm facing at work. That he, taught me, that he thought of me to be able to handle this trial that I'm going through. That he thought that I would be able to rejoice in the midst of a difficult class schedule or maybe the loss of a job or maybe financial issues. When was the last time you said, I'm not just going to be content, I'm also going to rejoice? So the rejoicing of contentment, but then notice secondly in verse number 11, you see the selflessness of contentment. The selflessness of contentment. Look at verse number 11. He says this, Not that I speak in respect of want. Verse number 17, Not because I desire a gift. How many of you have ever been around someone that has a way of asking you for something, but it's very kind? Anybody? Okay. 
Like you have a way, they have a way of saying it in just the right way to where you're like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. And then you hand it to them and it's like, wait a second. They just took my, my lunch money. They just took my, that was like elementary school, okay? But they just took whatever. Like I didn't, I don't even know how this happened. And I think that Paul very specifically, so that when us as 2020 Christians, we don't read this and we're like, that was just Paul wanting something for himself. Like he was, he was commending that church. He was making them feel really good about themselves so that they would give him something. And two times he says, not because I speak in respect of want, not because I desire a gift. And here's what you have to understand, is that contentment is selfless. How many of you have ever been around someone that almost, not only do they have a way of asking you for something and getting something out of you, but they almost have a false humility or a false contentment so that you'll feel bad for them? Have you ever been to uh, uh, maybe a restaurant with someone who's trying to save money? Okay, this isn't me making fun of anybody. This is just, okay, we've all been there. You've been with someone who's trying to save, and so what do they do? Like you walk into the restaurant and they just kind of like sheepishly stand by the door like, like, oh, man, my, my stomach's growling. Oh, well, yeah, you're next in line. Oh, I'm, st I'm still thinking. About well, before you know it, like, you've been there 20 minutes, and they're, they're just, like, sitting there, like, sipping on ice, and, like, staring at you, like, you're going you're gonna to cough up five bucks for me, right? You've been around someone like that? And so eventually you're kind of like, okay, okay, like, do you want something? I'll pay for it. You've made me feel bad enough to where now I feel like I'm going to help you out. Contentment is not that, okay? Contentment is selfless, meaning that we should not be okay with where we're at and spin it in a way to get somewhere else. And sometimes as human beings, we can almost play the sad puppy card to get out of some situations in life rather than just saying, this is where God has me, so guess what? I'm going to be okay with it. I'm going to rejoice in it. I lost a job. It stinks. It's difficult, but God has a purpose for it. I lost a boyfriend. I lost a girlfriend. I lost a relationship. I've got trouble in my family. I've got something going on. I need help. Those are all things that are selfless. And you saying, this is not me wanting something for myself. This is me saying, God, you're in control. God, I don't understand it, but I'm going to be content because I'm not going to make my discontentment about myself. So the selflessness of contentment, the rejoicing of contentment, and then thirdly, the balance of contentment. Look at verse number 12. This is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Here's what he says. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So here's what he says. He says, it doesn't matter if I'm on a high or if I'm on a low. It doesn't matter if I'm hungry or I'm full. It doesn't matter if I'm rich or I'm poor. And sometimes what we have a tendency of doing is we're really good at contentment when we get what we want. But we're really bad at it when we're not where we want to be, aren't we? Man, girlfriend, boyfriend, cool Instagram post, new car, new phone, all these things. We're really good about contentment. Praise the Lord for this. So thankful that God brought this good looking hunk into my life. Okay, We're really good at contentment when it's about that. But then all of a sudden the breakup happens and the next Instagram post is like, don't know where I'm going to go, don't know what I'm going to do, I can't believe this. Do you see the change? 
Do you see how we ride the highs and lows of this life rather than just saying, I doesn't matter if I'm on the mountaintop, I'm going to praise the Lord. It doesn't matter if I'm in the valley, I'm going to praise the Lord. It doesn't matter if I'm super stressed out at work or if I just got the biggest promotion of my life. I am going to know how to be abased and how to abound. I'm going to know how to be full and how to be hungry. That's contentment. And the only way that that is found is if it is found in something outside of those things. The only way that you can base your contentment on something other than the highs and lows of this life is if you have found something that never gets high and never gets low, and that is God. And for most of us, here's what we do. We ride this wave of contentment or of joy or of peace rather than just saying, no, I am going to find the God of peace who never changes. I am going to find the God who fulfills me that never changes. Do you see how that's different? And do you see how that could probably be a little bit of a difference maker in today's society? So the balance of contentment and then fourthly, the dependence of contentment. You probably, if you have been around church for any time at all, have read verse number 13. You've probably quoted it on a sports team. You have probably said it right before you go and fail a test. You have probably used it in a lot of different ways, okay? Most of them probably not accurate to the context of the scripture, okay? Because we read Philippians 4.13 and like that's the kind of stuff that like you get on a wristband right before you go and lose a soccer game 10 to 1, okay? Like, I can do all things through Christ. Probably not the proper use, okay? Well, I, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. So I'm going to go into this interview, and I'm just going to nail it. And then they ask you a question. You're like, oh, oh but I quoted Philippians 4.13. That's not how that works. So here's what he's saying. He says that his strength to get through the highs and lows is what comes from Christ. He says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now think about that verse, not in the context of sports, not in the context of a job, okay? Not in the context of whatever, getting through your classes. Think about it in the context of contentment. Think about it in the context of verse number 12. That he says, I have learned how to be abounding, and how to be at the bottom. I've learned how to be full and how to be hungry. And as a result of that, here's what I have found. That I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He's not talking about promotion. He's talking about contentment. Which means this. Those moments in your life to feel where you feel like you've arrived, okay? Those moments of your life where you make it to the top. That's not a moment for you to step back and say, Psh, look at me. Look where I'm at. Look where I got. No, it is a moment for you to glory in the strength of Jesus Christ who helped you get there. But on the other hand, and I want you to watch this, those moments in your life to where you step back and you think, 
what in the world is going on? The moments where you need strength, those are the exact same moments for you to look at verse number 13 and say, okay, this is where I'm at. And it is because of this that I can say, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now, I want you to listen to this for just a second. Listen to this statement. The same God who strengthened you to get you to this point is the same God who can strengthen you to sustain in this point. And sometimes we are really good at saying, well, I depend upon God here, but I did this. Or sometimes we're even good at vice versa. God, look at the mess I've gotten myself in. And we're really good to praise him on the good times. Oh, God, if it weren't for you, like I remember where I was at, and now look, look what you did. It's both. It's not either or. It's both. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me means that the same God who strengthens you to help you get out of a mess or strengthens you in promotion or strengthens you in success is the same God who can strengthen you in difficulty and in hardship. Do you see now why verse number 13 should actually probably be more popular than what we even think that it should be? shouldn't just be something we wear on a wristband or that we say in a huddle or that maybe we quote when we're going into something that we, don't, that we really want God to help us through. No, it should be something that we depend upon, that we say, I have learned how to be down here and be strengthened by Christ, but I have also learned that at the top I did not get there on my own. It was Christ who did it through me. So you see the dependence of contentment. And then third, or lastly, you see the desire of contentment. The desire of contentment. Why would Paul say all these things to these Christians? Why would he try to get them to see how content he was? Look at verse number 17. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. You want to know one of the greatest signs of contentment is that you don't have to get the win. I want to say that again because sometimes I think that we live in such a self-centered society that we don't like phrases like that. So we're kind of like, eh, I didn't like that. I hope he doesn't say it again. So I'm going to say it again, all right? One of the greatest signs of contentment is that you don't have to get the win. Do you know that sometimes it's okay? Not sometimes. Most of the time, it is okay if someone else gets the glory. And as a Christian... All the time, it's okay if God gets the glory. And if you are so consumed with, well, I've got to have this happen. I've got to get my boss to look at me rather than look at them. I've got to get my professor to think that I'm better than she is, or I've got to do this, or I've got to do this. Then here's what you're basically saying. Lord, I'm not okay with you handling it, so I've got to do it. Which, by the way, when you say it out loud, sounds really stupid, doesn't it? Lord, I'm not okay with how you're handling it. You're not doing it good enough. You're not promoting me fast enough. You're not making me look good enough. So guess what? I'm going to do it. And I'm going to get the win. And if you had to look at the moments in your life that created the most amount of stress and probably robbed you of the most joy, it was probably the moments that you took into your own hands and took them out of God's hands. Lord, you're not bringing the right person to me fast enough, so I'm going to go and find him on my own. 
I'm going to go and date someone that I know is not healthy for me. Lord, you're not fixing my finances fast enough, so I'm going to go and I'm just going to absolutely waste myself. I'm going to miss church. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to make sure that I'm out, it gets me out of God's word. I'm going to focus so much on my financial stability that I'm willing to give up on you. Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to trust you in this. I'm not going to trust you in that. I'm not whatever it may be. There's a million different opportunities, but at the end of the day, here's what we're saying is that when it becomes more about you rather than God and others, that's a clear sign that you're not content with where you're at. So joy is found in contentment. That's Paul's example. But then let's look at the church of Philippi secondly. Is that not only is joy found in contentment, but joy is found in giving. Now we're going to bring all this together in just a second. Same verses, 10 through 19. But let's see what we learn from the church of Philippi. First of all, we see their willingness in giving, the willingness of giving. Look at verse number 10. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. He said, You guys would have given to me, but you just didn't have a chance to. And I'm grateful for that. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord about that. But then notice, secondly, the help of giving. The help of giving. Look at verse number 14. He says, Notwithstanding, ye have well done, that ye did communicate with my affliction. He said, You met a need in my life that I could not meet. You communicated with my affliction, my hurt, my pain. And sometimes, here's what I want you to catch. Sometimes the greatest joy that you can find is entering into someone else's pain and not your own. And let's just be honest, as millennials and Gen Z and whoever else in this room under the age of 40, we stink at that. Because why? I got my own pains. I got my own problems. I don't want their problems. There is nothing more Christ-like than seeing another Christian, another person whose heart is broken and setting aside your pain and your problems and saying, I am going to go and to use the words of Scripture, communicate to their affliction. That word communicate doesn't mean you're going to go and talk to them about it. Hey, I see that you really hurt. Let me give you some advice. Probably not the route to go. No, it means to actually take part in it, to place yourself in it, to communicate to their affliction, so the help of giving. And then thirdly, notice the uniqueness of giving. This verse is always amazing to me when you think about it, especially when you think about who's writing it. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, verse number 15, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. Let that sink in, okay? We actually have a missionary presenting tonight, all right? And that's from that's going to Uruguay. If the Apostle Paul, I think about this a lot when I read this verse. If the Apostle Paul called into our church, Franklin Road Baptist Church, and Joel Norris answered the phone, and he said, hey, this is the Apostle Paul. I've planted a couple churches, looking, uh, looking to go into Macedonia. I'm looking to go on another missions trip and, and just want to know if I could come in and talk to your church family about praying for me and about maybe supporting me financially. I wonder if I would be like, ah, sorry, dude. 
we're not into the missions trip thing. Like, I don't know what my answer would be. But think about that the guy who wrote over half of the New Testament writes to this church at Philippi, and he says, at the beginning, you guys were the only ones who talked to me about giving. You guys were the only ones who said, hey, Paul, is there anything that we can do for you? And here's what he's saying in that verse, is you guys are unique. And here's what I would say to you when you choose to have an attitude of giving, is that there is nothing more Christ-like that will stand out in this world than an attitude of giving. Than an attitude of, what can I do for you that doesn't influence me? What can, how can I help you? Not just because it's the right thing to ask. Hey, is there anything I can do for you? Yeah, there is. Oh, I wasn't being serious. Hey, call me if there's anything to do for me. Welcome to the area. Let me know if you need help moving. Oh, you actually called? Can you need help moving? I wasn't being serious. That's the way we live most of our life. We say the right thing, but when it actually comes down to doing it, most of the time we can get selfish. And what he says to this church is, you're unique, you're special. And if that was true when Paul was writing, how many of you think that that would be even more true in 2020 when it almost seems like everyone is out for themselves? You go and get some. Go get yours. And I think that if you find joy in what you can do for someone else, you will find joy that is from Christ and Christ alone. Then uh, number four the providence of giving, the providence of giving. Verse number 16, he says, For even in Thessalonica ye sent once again, once and again, unto my necessity. I can't tell you the amounts of times that we have had someone that maybe we've sent a gift to. Um, I actually remember a story uh, from a couple months ago that it was right when kind of coronavirus was happening, and so... Um, I had an email that kind of got lost in the shuffle and we had gotten some approval to send someone something and it, long story short, it ended up getting there way later than it should have. And I remember that we got an email back after they had received it and after they had gotten it and they said, you'll have no clue how much this meant at this moment. And they even said in the email, we know that you could have sent it at the time of the letter, but for whatever reason, thing, and like we, we apologize, it was our fault, like it, got, it just kind of got messed up, but it was something that God took it and used it at that moment. And sometimes here's what we're guilty of doing is, well, God kind of told me to do something for that person, but I, I feel like I missed my window. And we can come up with all kinds of excuses. Well, but they've, they're kind of over it. And here's what you don't know. You don't know how God could providentially use that in their lives. So the providence of giving. And then uh, number five, the fruit of giving. The fruit of giving. When you give, you're the one who receives the blessing. When you give, you're the one who receives the blessing. Now, I'm not talking about that you drop a check in the offering plate and you pull out your phone and you look at your bank account. Like, oh God, I gave, so where's the deposit back? Oh, looky there, deposit. Is, oh, I don't even know. It came from heaven. That's not always how it works. And when I talk about giving, sometimes I think we have this thought in our mind, like, well, he's just talking about finances. I'm not talking about that. 
can't tell you how many times that Lauren and I or, or I've shown up for something or she's shown up for something or sometimes like hospital visits as a person on pastoral staff are just not my thing. Like, like that. I hate hospitals. Hospitals hate me. Like I get super jittery. You can ask her. Like I touch everything in a doctor's office because it's like I don't know what to do with my hands. I don't know if I'm supposed to sit here like I'm trying to win the quiet seat prize. So like I end up with like five rubber gloves and I blow them up and like take them to Braxton afterwards. Like it's just it's a very nervous moment for me. And so I don't do when they're like, hey, there's no one else on pastoral staff. Can you go see this person? I'm like, oh, are you sure? Like. But I can't tell you how many times I've walked into someone and I'm there to be an encouragement to them. And normally, like, I walk in and I'm like, I have to say the perfect prayer. I have to not pass out. I have to, like, there's a lot of things swirling through my brain right now. Like, is my sugar level the right way? Because God knows that if I see any little bit of blood, like, I'm down and then I'm in the bed right next to him, all right? But at the end of the day, when I walk in there, there's times where I've shown up and I, hey, I'm just here to pray for you. I'm here to let you know that the church loves you and that we're going we're gonna to try to be there for you if there's anything that you need. And so many times I've watched people sit there and say, you didn't need to come. God's in control. I actually had one lady tell me, your prayer wasn't going to do any different here than it would have done at the church. And I was like, okay, that's accurate. <laughs> But sometimes when you choose to give outside of your comfort zone in a lot of different ways, and however the Holy Spirit challenges you, you're the one who receives the blessing. And if you're not careful, you will miss out on some really unique opportunities just because you became selfish. You became inward focused. You became focused on, well, this is what my need is rather than saying, I get an opportunity to get some fruit out of this. And then number six, or whatever we're on, the pleasing of giving. When you give, who does it please? You might be surprised to know that it doesn't always please the person you're giving to, but it always pleases God. Look at verse number 18. He goes in and he talks about the things that they sent through Epaphroditus and he talks about how that it was so sacrificial. He says it was a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Meaning this, that if we are never more like God than when we give, and if we have an opportunity to please God in how we give, why would we not do it more often? And when I talk about giving, once again, sometimes this just means maybe giving up on something that is keeping you from God. Sometimes it maybe means giving up on something that is causing division. Sometimes it might mean giving up on something that is your hobby horse and maybe not what God has for others. Sometimes it might mean taking a loss on some conversations or something with your family. One day when you get married, sometimes it might mean that you don't have to be right. If we are truly saying that contentment is shown by not always having to win, then guess what? Sometimes it means that it is okay to please God by saying like, okay, this isn't something to, this isn't a hill to die on. I'm going to maybe give up on 
my wants and my wishes and my dreams to say, God, I'm willing to do this to please you. And then the last thing is this, before we look at the last thought, is I want you to look at verse number 19, the cycle of giving, the cycle of giving. When you read down through these verses, here's what you'll see. And I would encourage you to go back and reread them. You'll see two examples. You see Paul saying, man, my joy is found in contentment. I'm thankful that I've learned that I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That it doesn't matter if I'm high or if I'm low, God's still there. But on the other hand, you'll also see this example of the church of Philippi. And you see how they gave. But then in verse number 19, it comes to really a concluding thought. And it brings them both together. And he said, the same way that you helped meet my needs is the same way that God will choose to meet your needs when you become a giving spirit. And I call that the cycle of giving because here's why. When you choose to give to God, to someone that God has laid on your heart, you don't know, number one, how you will get that in return. But number two, how they will see that used to give to someone else. And if you're not careful, here's what giving will look like. Well, Lord, I gave and... What did, what did I get out of it? Lord, you remember that time I wrote that big check and like I heard all this stuff about sacrificing and so I did and guess what? Now I'm broke. But you don't know, number one, how God has met your needs. Number two, you don't know how that has been used to meet the needs of others. Here's one of the things that never ceases to amaze me in the context of the local church, okay? I do not believe in the least that we give to get, okay? One of the things I've said in here is you don't, get, you don't give to get, you don't have to give, you get to give, okay? The Lord loveth a cheerful giver. And here's what I step back and look at as someone who maybe sees the numbers. When we stand before God in heaven... Yes, things might have gotten tight down here because of some things that you sacrificed. But when you stand before God in heaven and can look in the eyes of people who were saved and touched as, the, as a result of your service, of your time, of your finances, will it matter in that moment? Hopefully it won't because you're in heaven. Like, oh man, I, I just wish I would have had a better retirement fund. I just wish that I would have, would have, I so wish that I would have saved up and gotten a Lamborghini. If you think that in heaven, don't say it out loud, okay? In heaven, it doesn't matter because God can read your mind. He can read it down here too, so it doesn't matter, period. But the cycle of giving is that when you choose to give and step outside yourself, God has a way of bringing that back and not only meeting your needs and supplying your needs, but he also has a way of using that to allow someone else to give. And when I look at my life, the moments, and I want you to listen to this, the moments that I have been the most apt to give 
is when I've seen God meet the needs in my life. I don't doubt God to, to meet them again because I've already seen him do it. So guess what? It's easy to give. Not always easy, but it's a lot more enjoyable. Lord, that doesn't make sense, but I've seen you do it, so I'm just going to do it again. I'm going to trust you. Don't get into the habit of losing your joy because you're unwilling to give, which leads us to this last thought. What can we conclude about joy? We get to verse number 20. It's pretty much the same conclusion as almost every book that Paul writes. He says, Now unto God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Here's what I think that we conclude about joy and about the book of Philippians. Is that when we have joy, God is glorified. God is glorified. The longer that I look at this insane world in which we live the more that I'm convinced that Christians should begin to stand out more and more. That while the rest of the world struggles and doubts and, well, what's going to happen next? Well, what's going to happen next? Well, I can't figure this out. Well, this is crazy. I don't understand. For you to be able to walk into that moment with joy and with hope and with contentment speaks volumes of the Christ that you say you believe in. So God is glorified. He says that in verse number 20. He says, glory to God both forever and ever. Amen. But then notice, secondly, that Christians are unified. Christians are unified through joyful living. I want you to look at verse number 21 and number 22. Paul almost always gives a salute at the end of his books. So verse number 21. He says, salute every saint in Christ Jesus. I don't know that that's actually talking about a hoot, toot, okay? I don't think that's it. But if you want to start practicing that, since we're not doing handshaking time, go for it. Might be a little weird, just so you know, all right? Basically saying, give greeting to every saint in Christ Jesus. And then he says, the brethren which are with me greet you. So now he's saying, hey, all these guys that I've got here with me, they say hi too, all right? You remember like when you used to text, like when you were a teenager, and, and the, your, your friend beside you would say, who are you texting? you say, uh, it was normally a girl or a guy. You'd tell him I said hi. And since you already didn't have anything else to talk about, and you were awkward anyways, oh, so-and-so says hi. Oh, tell me, that, tell them I said hi. Okay, they said, hey, back. Oh, tell him I said, hey, that's kind of what's happening in verse number 21, all right? We're not going to prolong that illustration any longer because you guys weren't laughing and it wasn't making sense, all right? Number, but look at verse number 22, okay? He says, all the saints salute you. How in the world is he able to say all the saints salute you? Because they were unique. And I want you to look at this. And he says, chiefly, they that are of Caesar's household. He said, there's something different about you. He said that there is a place of honor. I want you to listen to this. A salute 
is a greeting, but it is typically done in an honorary fashion, isn't it? He said, all of the saints salute you because there's something different about you. Remember, this is the only epistle that we know of that Paul wrote that is in our Bible to where there's no form of correction. There's no mention of sin. He is serving as the role of a cheerleader to say, you're already going in the right direction, just keep going. And so all the way down to the very close of the book, he says, there's some people that I know that are going to stand in heaven and when they hear that you're from the church of Philippi, they're going to say, thank you. Christians are unified when there is joyful living. And then the last thing is this, is that grace is magnified through joyful living. Look at verse number 23. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let me just talk to you from my heart as we conclude this series, okay? I want you to listen. I fully understand that joy in this life is not easy, okay? I am not going to stand up here and make you feel like a rotten heathen because you have a bad day sometimes. I'm not going to make you feel guilty because you got irritated at someone today. That happens. That's life. But at some point, wouldn't it be nice to hit a moment in your life to where rather than the stress and pressures and the anxiety, which is a word that is used in this, be careful for nothing. Remember we talked about that, Philippians 4 verse 6, it basically saying be anxious for nothing. Wouldn't it be nice that then rather than stress being the norm, and discontentment being the norm, that for the people in this room and for Christians all around this world, that joy was the norm, that contentment was the norm. And I hate to say it, but I feel like that the church and Christians are drifting further away from that. We're falling into the same traps as the world. We're, we're having the same thing steal our joy as what steals the joy of the people that we live and work beside. So what ends up happening? Grace and joy and the glory of God and Christians lack unity. Some of those things are too prevalent in today's society simply because we've chosen to live this life selfishly. And I encourage you this week, look at the things that bum you out, that bother you, the things that stress you out, the things that um, make you feel discontent and bothered. If you drill down on that feeling a lot, it's not going to be about someone else, it's going to be about you. It's going to be because you didn't get what you wanted out of a situation. You didn't get the need, your needs met out of a situation. I'm not saying to go through this life and live it like a pauper and just, well, I don't get anything. I'm just, just. But this is the life that we're called to live as Christians. 
And unfortunately, modern day America and the American dream has made nothing sound miserable. And for the Christian, it should be, well, wasn't really mine to start with. Man, I, I, I didn't see my job loss coming, but God did. So guess what? I'm going to rejoice in it. I, I, I didn't see that breakup coming, but guess what? I'm going to rejoice in it. I didn't see this being my financial plot in life, but I'm going to rejoice in it. And too many times, here's what we do. We go and we find joy. And I want you to listen to this. This is maybe the greatest summary of Philippians that we have said throughout this whole thing. We go and we find joy in the very things that will take it from us. I'm going to find my joy in my relationship status. And when it's gone, psh, my joy is gone. I'm going to find joy in my financial security, and when it's gone, then our joy is gone. I'm going to find joy in my job security, in my education, or in whatever. I'm going to find joy in this, and then all of a sudden, when it's gone, I've lost my joy. Rather than saying, no, I'm going to find my joy in Jesus, and if financial security comes, great. But if financial ruin comes, my joy is in Jesus. If great relationships come alongside of me, great. But my joy is Jesus. Honey, girlfriend, boyfriend, babe, whatever, good looking, okay? Whatever you want to call your significant other, you're not responsible for my joy. I am responsible for it in Christ. If, my, if I ace everything and I'm magna cum summa grade A, okay, whatever, like, that's not where your joy is found. Your joy should be found in Christ. And that and only then is when you will be able to say, I've learned how to be both abased and abound. Abased and abound. And through all of it, I've found that I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me, that my God shall supply your needs according to his riches and glory, and that others are saluting you. God is glorified and that grace is magnified in this life. Thanks for listening. If this lesson is helpful to you, feel free to share it with someone else or let us know by emailing us at crosspoint at franklinroad.org. You can also check us out at frbc underscore crosspoint on Instagram and Twitter. We look forward to connecting with you again soon.